Well, if you are new to our Sunday night rotation, let me explain what happens. Every month we choose a topic that we're going to cover for that entire month. And then every Sunday night we'll have a different format to address that topic. So we'll spend one week, which tonight will be the first week, we'll spend the first week studying that topic, learning about that topic, seeing what the Bible has to say about it. We'll spend another week singing about that topic, addressing one another in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and admonishing one another through that process as we address that, that topic through song. Uh, then on a third week of the month, we will discuss that topic in a roundtable format with, with our ministers as well as some guest uh, roundtable participants, which will actually begin next week. And then on the, uh, the last week of the month, we will typically pray about that topic. And all the topics are going to center around the home this year, as that is our theme for the year. And, and just as way of reminder, since we're early in that process, I wanted to, let you, to just remind you of what this format looks like. Now, this month is a little out of order. Due to some scheduling conflicts, we're actually going to do the roundtable next week. And then we will do our singing night on the third Sunday of the month, which will be February 18th. But we will conclude with our, our prayer night on the last Sunday of the month. Um, so please make plans to join us next week as we discuss this topic together. And I know what you're thinking. The topic for this month is, month is intimacy in the home. What in the world is Kyle about to talk about? And to be honest, when we picked out the topics for the year, we, we picked out topics we thought were the most pertinent. We, we picked out topics that we thought needed to be addressed. But I had no idea going into last week just exactly what I should talk about as we get started with the study of intimacy in the home. But maybe the best place for us to start is to define what intimacy is. And so I appealed to the uh, American Psychological Association and their definition of intimacy, which is provided for you on the screen. They define intimacy as an interpersonal state of extreme emotional closeness, such that each party's personal space can be entered by any of the other parties without causing discomfort to that person. Of course, there's also the, on the National, Health, the National Institute of Health a definition that, that John Burnett actually shared with me that I had to go pull up, and it's this definition of intimacy. The theoretical definition for intimacy is a quality of a relationship in which the individuals must have reciprocal feelings of trust and emotional closeness toward each other and are able to openly communicate thoughts and feelings with each other. And then there's the always reliable dictionary.com, which provided this definition of intimacy, a close, familiar, and usually affectionate or loving personal relationship with another person or group. When you look at all those definitions and take them into consideration as to what intimacy is, intimacy in its broadest of terms refers to a relational dynamic between two parties that is marked by closeness and familiarity and trust. And when we speak of intimacy in the context of the home, we're really looking at it in two primary dynamics the dynamic of the marital relationship and the dynamic of the parent-child relationship. 
You see, when we think about the word intimacy, we typically jump straight into the, the concept of, of, uh, of a, a sexual relationship, but intimacy is much more than that. And when the Bible addresses it, it addresses it as much more than that. In fact, there are at least, at least five components of intimacy. There, depending on what counseling website you go to or what you Google, you can see as many as ten different forms of intimacy. But I've kind of settled on these five as the ones I've seen most consistently portrayed. Of course, you have physical intimacy, but physical intimacy can be that sexual relationship between a husband and wife, or it can be the, the physical touch of hugging one another, uh, of a comforting uh, and nurturing touch. Then there's also experiential Intimacy, that's where you have shared experience, whether that be going on vacation or traveling together or experiencing new things together or even developing a routine you share with one another. It's your everyday experience that is part of your intimate relationship with somebody. And there is emotional intimacy. That's the sharing of your thoughts and your feelings. That's the ability to have empathy with one another. That's the, the ability to communicate with one another. Emotional intimacy is a part of, the, of, of our relationships as well. Of course, there's intellectual intimacy. And that's where you're able to share ideas with one another, have deep, meaningful conversations with one another. That's when you're able to uh, uh, agree or disagree with one another. Intellectual intimacy. And of course, finally, spiritual intimacy, which revolves around our, our faith our morals and our ethics and what they are founded upon and what we believe in. Intimacy has multiple components to it. Now, I think we can all agree that intimacy is a more complex term than sometimes we give it credit. But why does it matter that we talk about it? Why should we even take the time on a Sunday evening like this for you to sit there and listen to a guy like me talk about intimacy? Well, it's because the absence of intimacy can create some difficulties. For one, when there is no intimacy, when intimacy is absent, particularly in the context of the family, it can lead to wrongdoing. It can lead to mistakes and poor decisions. Let me give you the example of Isaac and Rebekah. In Genesis chapter 25, we learn that Isaac and Rebekah have two boys. One was named Esau, and he grew up to be a skillful hunter. The other was named Jacob, and he grew up to be kind of a homebody. But the most important thing we learn about these two boys in Genesis chapter 25, and verse 28, is that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, do you know what that tells me? That tells me that Isaac had a much more intimate relationship with Esau than he did Jacob. And Rebekah had a much more intimate relationship with Jacob than she did Esau. They kind of chose favorites, didn't they? It is kind of a, a learned behavior in their family. When you reflect on Abraham, he, had, he, he kind of got forced into picking favorites by his wife. Because she made him get rid of the one child, Ishmael, and give all of his attention to Isaac. 
And Isaac's going to repeat that. I mean, excuse me, Jacob's going to repeat that behavior when he has kids. And we're going to talk about this again in a moment. But he ends up picking a favorite among all of his own children. So it kind of runs in the family. But there's an obvious intimacy that exists between the father and the oldest son and the mother and the youngest son in this family. What's so very fascinating is how this lack of intimacy between Jacob, between Isaac and Jacob creates a dilemma for the family in the long run. You see, when it came time for Isaac to bless one of his sons, he naturally selected Esau because Esau was technically the oldest, but more importantly, he was the one with whom Isaac had the most intimate relationship. The only problem was that God had told them during Rebekah's pregnancy that the older shall serve the younger. And that was his way of indicating which of the two children would carry on the covenant blessing that started with Abraham. And God had clearly told them that that belonged to the youngest of the two sons. That belonged to Isaac. So what you have here is a situation where, that, I said Isaac, that belonged to Jacob. And what you have here is a situation where Isaac, because he has a greater affection, a more intimate relationship with Esau, is ignoring God's expectation. He's ignoring God's will. And so he gives instructions to Esau to ready himself for this blessing ceremony. Rebecca overhears it. And in what seems on the surface, at least, to be a very deceptive act on her part, might just be under the surface a much more intentional effort to fulfill God's will because she arranges for Jacob to intercept that blessing as God had told them to do. But it is Isaac's lack of intimacy with Jacob that leads him to make a decision that almost interrupts God's plan. See, a lack of intimacy can lead us to make wrong decisions, can lead us to make mistakes, can lead to all sorts of problems when intimacy is expected. But it's not just that the absence of intimacy can lead to wrongdoing. It's also that the absence of intimacy can create wounds. I've already alluded to Jacob and his children If you journey a few chapters ahead into Genesis chapter 37, you'll read about his intimate relationship with one of his 12 sons, the son named Joseph. It's in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 3 that we're told Jacob loved Joseph more than any of any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Once again, we have a relational dynamic in this family where there is greater intimacy between the father and one son than the other sons. And that lack of intimacy that Jacob had with his other 10 or 11 sons, depending on how you're counting it at this point, created a great deal of damage within the family. In fact, in the very next verse of Genesis 37, talking about verse 4, we're told that Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Is it Joseph's fault that they hate him? 
Is it Joseph's doing that has led to this disdain they feel for him? No, it's the lack of intimacy that their father is showing the other brothers that has caused this. And most of you probably know the rest of that story. How Joseph's brothers capture him, throw him in a pit, sell him to some slave traders, and send him off to Egypt, then tell their dad he died by the hands of a wild animal. Well, they don't really tell him. They just steal that colorful robe, cover it in goat's blood, hand it to dad, and let him draw his own conclusion. But all of that happened in part because dad showed greater intimacy to one child and not the others. There was a lack of intimacy among, between the father and those other children. And so the absence of intimacy can also create wounds, long-lasting wounds. And we would be amiss not to mention this one. The absence of intimacy can expose weaknesses. This is particularly the case when it comes to sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. And it's the very reason that Paul penned these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-5, through 5, which I do not have projected, but let me read them to you. Paul writes, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The summary of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 is that as a husband and or a husband and wife the physical intimacy you experience is reserved for that relationship alone. And you need to be careful not to forgo it. For too long, because it serves as a preventative for sexual immorality. And what we can infer from those instructions is that the absence of physical intimacy, particularly in the context that we're talking about in marriage, can expose one or both parties to temptation. It can weaken the husband or the wife in that particular arena. And so Paul gives instructions for there not to be an absence of intimacy in that context. You see, there's a danger when we lack intimacy. Whether it be exposing us to weakness or creating wounds or leading to wrongdoing, intimacy is important. But what does the Bible ultimately have to say on this subject of intimacy that we need to talk about? What can we take from Scripture on the subject of intimacy? You're not going to find that word in the text of Scripture. You know, one of the best ways 
I think the Bible communicates the importance of intimacy in the home is through passages that are known as the household codes. Now, that may not be terminology you're quite familiar with, but there are a few sections in the New Testament that scholars call household codes because they adhere to a practice in first century Greco-Roman literature of identifying the roles and responsibilities of each member of the household. This was a normalized uh, ethic in that day and age, a normalized literature style to produce an ethical teaching on what husbands should do, what wives should do, what fathers should do, what mothers should do, what children should do. And it even extended into the, the, the home environment that involved masters and servants. And there are three primary sections of the New Testament that give us such household codes. I want to read all three of those very quickly, and then we'll talk about them to apply it to our lives. The first one is the largest. It appears in Ephesians chapter... Whoa. It appears in Ephesians chapter 5. Nick. I had lunch with Nick today, and we were talking about the relationship of me with the person working back there and how I messed them up one time because I had my controller on too early during the song service, and I was laser pointing over here, and I was pushing the slides forward. And now I get to make fun of him from the pulpit because he's back there. It's a joy of mine. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, we have one of our first household codes in the New Testament, the longest of them and the one you're probably the most familiar with. Now, it starts here in verse 22 with instructions to wives, and you'll see a shift to husbands in verse 25, and then you'll see a shift in verse 1 of chapter 6 to children, followed by fathers at verse 4, and then it technically continues on in chapter 6 to include servants and masters. But we're just going to focus on wives, husbands, parents, children. Beginning in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A very similar but much, much abbreviated version of these household codes appears in Colossians chapter 3, in verses 18 through 21. Paul gives some of the very same statements here, and this is the second time we have a household code in the New Testament. And it goes like this, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
And I'm going to read one more section of Scripture that I believe counts as a household code, even though it doesn't include some of the other elements like masters and servants. But it comes from Peter, from 1 Peter chapter 3, and it encompasses the first seven verses. It doesn't even address parents and children. It just focuses on husbands and wives, but I think it's pertinent to our study tonight. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the, build, the braiding of hair and the pulling, putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And continuing on in verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now there's a lot to unpack in all these verses, but I simply want to highlight ways in which I believe these instructions are given to promote intimacy between husband and wife and parent and children. I want to start with the wives, since that's where each of these inspired authors start. I believe when we look at these passages, we can see that intimacy from wife to husband necessitates respect. Now, if you paid close attention, you would have noticed that in Ephesians, in Colossians, and in 1 Peter, the very first thing that is said to wives is submit. Submit to your husbands or be subject to your husbands. In our day and age, that's not a very well-appreciated instruction to wives. Submission is not a concept looked favorably on in our culture. But what I notice in both Paul's writings and Peter's is that if you understand what they mean by submission, it should not offend you. Peter's instructions make reference to wives being subject to their husbands by having a respectful conduct. And Paul, when he gives his instructions in Ephesians chapter 5, he starts off in verse 22 by telling wives to submit. But by the end of those instructions, when you get down to verse 33, he has changed his terminology. Or rather, he has nuanced his terminology by telling the wife to respect her husband. See, we have to understand that before Paul launched into these household codes in Ephesians 5, he told everyone, man, woman, everyone, to submit to one another. So submission is something that each of us is expected to do. And when he gets into the instructions for wives, he makes it clear that the submission he's talking about has to do with respecting the husband. 
It has everything to do with the fact that God has assigned spiritual headship in the home to the husband. Now, does that mean that every man, every husband succeeds at fulfilling that responsibility? Absolutely not. But it is the way that God designed the home to exist. And what Paul is communicating and what Peter is communicating is that one of the ways, if not the primary way, that a wife can develop intimacy in that marital relationship with her husband is through showing respect. In his book, His Needs, Her Needs, Dr. Willard Harley identified the top five needs of men and women when it comes to marriage. Now, he identified the the top need for men to be physical intimacy, but when he got into the realm of what is the top emotional need of men, he identified it as admiration, which I think is just a fancy word for respect. And the point is that whether we're talking about modern psychology or ancient theology, The best way that a wife can develop an intimate relationship with her husband is through respect. Now, are there husbands that don't deserve respect? Absolutely. But it's very interesting that this respectful conduct that Peter talks about in the context of submitting to one's husband, has the ability to convert an unbelieving husband. Did you catch that when we read 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1? Peter instructed wives to be subject to their husbands, and he is obviously indicating that these are believing wives, married, and some married to unbelieving husbands, and he's saying even if your husband does not Believe in Jesus Christ. Be subject to him because your respectful and pure conduct may just be the very thing that leads him to Christ. And so if you want to develop intimacy in the home, particularly in the context of marriage, then wives listen to the instructions of Peter and Paul about being respectful because the number one emotional need, according to modern psychology, was given by God long before psychology existed. It's the need of men to feel respected and admired by the woman they love. Now that's the wife-to-husband element of intimacy. Let's now talk about the husband-to-wife relational intimacy dynamic. Because I believe as I read through these words of Paul and Peter, that when it comes to the husband-to-wife intimacy, it necessitates affection. Paul instructs husbands to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. He then equates a husband's love for his wife to love for himself. And to make sure that husbands get what he's saying, he reiterates the love your wife as yourself instruction for a second time in Ephesians chapter 5 when he wraps it up in verse 33. Whereas he took the submit to your husband's expectation 
and converted it to respect your husbands. He kept it the same when he addressed men. Wives, submit to your husbands, but let me nuance that by telling you about respect. Husbands, love your wives, and let me reiterate it to get it through your thick skull. Love your wives. That's the way it works in Ephesians chapter 5. What does it mean to love your wives? Returning to the uh, book I mentioned earlier, His Needs, Her Needs, it's pointed out that the top or the primary need of women from their husbands is affection. Affection. Affection is that expression of love for the one to whom you're married. And I believe as I look at Peter's instructions, though he doesn't instruct husbands to love their wives, he does give them instructions that coincide with affection. Because Peter's instructions for the husband revolve around the idea of being considerate of your wife and honoring your wife. That's the point he makes in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. If you want to look at it again, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there's a lot there, and I know right off the bat, many of you women are like, why is he calling us weaker vessels? We'll get to it. But notice that the overarching instruction for husbands to wives is to show them honor. Showing honor to the woman. And to live with her in an understanding way. What does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? It appears to convey the idea that husbands are to be considerate and understanding of their wives. In other words, there's an expectation placed on Christian men to know their wives. To recognize their needs and their wants and their interests. And to take those into consideration when leading the family. In other words, it's an anti-dominance policy. And this is significant because Peter identified wives as a weaker vessel. And what did he mean by that? In the immediate context of this passage, the female is weaker in the sense of social entitlement and empowerment. In the Greco-Roman world to which Paul initially wrote these words, women lacked power. And it's important to notice that in this section of 1 Peter, Peter is addressing Everyone who's in a weaker position, socially speaking. He started off with instructions about how one relates to their government. And so his instructions dealt with the citizen who was weaker in comparison to the emperor. And then he transitioned into instructions that related to servants and masters. And his instructions were focused on the servants who were in a weaker position than their masters. And then he gets to the home. And in the social setting of that day and age, in the dynamics of that world, women were weaker in standing 
But nowhere in Scripture are women identified as intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually inferior to men. And so it appears that Peter is referring to women as the weaker vessel because they lack the authority in the home that God had given men. So when Peter told husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, he was instructing them not to operate as marital dictators, but to lead their marriages and their homes by listening to, appreciating, understanding, and considering the needs and interests of their spouses. That's affection. Intimately knowing your wife. Appreciating your wife. Listening to your wife. That's what Paul and Peter are calling husbands to do. And that will create intimacy. Now what about this parent and child dynamic? In both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul addresses children instructing them to obey their parents. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, he instructs children to obey their parents in the Lord. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, obey your parents in everything. Obedience. That's the language of intimacy from a child to a parent. Do you know Why? Because when you obey, when you obey, you're saying, I trust you. When my daughter does what I've asked her to, when she obeys my instruction, it's her way of saying, I trust that you know what's best here. Isn't that how we communicate with God? We're called to trust in the Lord. We're called to obey the Lord. And when we obey him, when we do what he's instructed us to do, that is communicating that we trust that he knows what's best. For children to, communicate, for children to develop intimacy with their parents, the Bible's solution is obedience. Now, we have to admit something. Obedience is only temporary. Obedience in the child-parent dynamic won't always be around. Because there is a point at which, according to the first marriage relationship, you will leave and cleave starting your own family. But while you're in the home, as a child under the rule of your parents, there is an expectation of obedience as long as it's in the context of maintaining obedience to the Lord. But there is a time in which that obedience adjusts. And as Paul alludes to in Ephesians chapter 5, focuses more on honor. And that honor takes many forms. It can take the form of taking care of your parents in their old age respecting their position as parents in the wisdom that they can offer. It can take many different forms. But that intimacy is built from child to parent through obedience. And what often gets overlooked is that that intimacy is developed from parent to child 
through encouragement. Did you notice the instructions that were given to fathers specifically in both Ephesians and Colossians? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul instructs parents, specifically fathers, to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But he also instructs them not to provoke their children. Not to provoke them to anger, he specifically says in Ephesians. In Colossians, it's left a little more open-ended. What does that mean? Why, why is Paul telling us not to provoke our children? Paul's point is that parents should not embitter or irritate their children. The, the not provoking instruction, which is repeated in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, has a reason given for it. According to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, parents are not to provoke their children so that they become discouraged. Paul's concern seems to be that parents have the potential to create animosity within their children if their training belittles them, is overly critical of them, or engenders a belief that they will never be good enough. You have a responsibility as a parent to train your child, but Paul is saying, hey, don't take it too far. Don't be so demeaning of them in the process that they lose their respect of you. Make sure that your training is designed to encourage and promote all the things that God wants, not to make your child feel like he or she is worthless or incapable of doing good. In other words, there is some sort of limitation or some sort of parameter in which our training should be encompassed. And our intimacy with our child is expressed through our ability to train them in an encouraging way. That does not mean we do not discipline. That does not mean that we do not punish. That does not mean that we do not have restrictions it means that when we must be cautious in going too far. And I imagine a great many of you know what I'm talking about. Because you've either experienced or known someone whose parents never encouraged, never loved, never showed affection, never treated their child like they mattered. That's what Paul is warning against. And our intimacy as parents to our children will be communicated through our ability to encourage as we train. Now, I've got to be honest. I'm not a professional. I have no training in the field of psychology. I have no training in the field of counseling. I'm just a student of the Word. And as I, as I spend time studying the subject of intimacy, it is these household codes by, written by Paul and by Peter that stand out to me as giving instructions that can lead to greater intimacy in the home. And if you get nothing else out of tonight's lesson, I hope you'll get this. Realize that our relationships in the home are intended to be metaphors for our relationship with the Lord. 
We, as members of the body of Christ, are his bride and we are his children. Our, our dynamics of our relationship with God are metaphorically presented in Scripture as a marriage and as a house. You know, the Bible consistently speaks of God's intimate knowledge of us. He intimately knows us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He knows what we need before we ever even ask. And the Bible speaks of God's desire for us to have an intimate relationship with him. He wants us to let all our requests be made known to him. He wants us to study his words so that we can be complete and equipped for every good work. And he wants us to draw near to him so he can draw near to us. Our relationship with God is intended to be intimate. And our relationship with God is depicted in terms of marriage and family. So maybe our marriages and our families are the training grounds on which we learn intimacy so that we can experience true intimacy with the Father. This evening, we take time to study this subject in hopes that it can help our homes. But we also take time to study this subject in hopes that it will help us draw closer to him. If you're here tonight and you have any need to respond to the invitation, then we invite you to come while together we stand.